0: briefly touch upon is the research that me and my colleagues have done over the past two years. And what I'm drawing on is the fact that two years ago, some of my colleagues and I noticed that people from Britain and other Western country, uh, countries were going over to Syria to fight. And not only were they going over, even though they were in Syria, they were still on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and it became actually quite easy to follow them and to inform ourselves about what they were doing over there. And at some point we realized that the fact that they were on social media also meant that we could actually get in touch with them and communicate with them. So now, two years later, we have built up a database with 550 online social media profiles of fighters that are part of the same conflict, Western fighters that are part of the same conflict. We've communicated with about 50 of them. In addition to that, we've done two field trips to the border region between Syria and Turkey from where a lot of the fighters are going into Syria, and we've interviewed transporters, sheikhs, some of the fighters themselves. So I can say that we've built up quite a rich picture in terms of um, what these, what these uh, you know, who these people are, what they do, and uh, how they think. Now, The point I want to get across in my, perhaps, remaining eight minutes is a very simple one, which is that the foreign fighters that we have dealt with and that we have observed are not a monolithic entity. They are quite different in terms of their motivations, what made them go to Syria in the first place. They are doing different things inside of Syria, and their experience is very different from fighter to fighter. And consequently, I believe that our responses to this phenomenon should also differentiate according to their experience and according to their motivation. So let me briefly go through these various points. The first point is about the motivations. It's very clear from our observation that there are different waves of fighters that have gone over to Syria. The first wave, perhaps 2012 and early 2013, I would say a majority of the fighters were really generally moved by the humanitarian catastrophe in Syria, the fact that, as so it was perceived, Bashar al-Assad was killing, torturing, raping his own people. And clearly, people felt a sense of obligation to help what they considered to be their brothers and sisters and to prevent what they saw as a genocide (coughs) playing out. And perhaps naively, they often, in the majority of cases, did not believe that they were going to be prosecuted upon their return. They did not see themselves to be necessarily in a confrontation with Britain or Western countries, which at that point, it wasn't. In fact, the only complaint at that point was that the West was a little bit too passive and that the West was not helping the Syrian opposition enough. So that was a prominent motivation. That was something that was often articulated by people who were going over at that point. It's certainly clear also, however, that the people who are going over now are perhaps more ideologically motivated. And there are people who are going over now who are genuinely excited about the idea of building the Islamic State, building a caliphate, being part of a historical project that people in a 1,000 years will still be talking about, those brave young Westerners who went over to build the new caliphate. And I do think, personally, from my impression, from my observation, that possibly those people will be more difficult to deal with upon their return than the people who went in the first wave. And some of you may have seen the reporting about some of the conversations we had two or three weeks ago in The Times, there was a big story about uh, jihadists telling us that they want to come back. And those disillusioned jihadists are almost exclusively people that went over in the first wave. who now feel that they are being trapped in a situation that they didn't realize would come about and they feel they want to go home but cannot do that. So in terms of motivations, that's a very rough overview. There's, of course, also other motivations. People are now energized about confrontation with the West. There's no doubt about that. And it's certainly also true that when you're talking about particular demographics, like, for example, young men, the idea of adventure, uh, also plays an important role. People go over there to become heroes, to have a great time to some extent. Literally, when people, when some of these people go over, within five minutes, uh, we see them posting a picture with an RPG or a gun on their Facebook profile, telling their folks at home, look, I've arrived, I'm a fighter now, I'm part of this conflict." So that's the motivations. Now, in terms of the experience inside of Syria, um, it, 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 the, the term foreign fighter, perhaps is a bit of a misnomer because not everyone is necessarily fighting. And specifically Europeans, uh, Western Europeans, who in many cases may have never shot a gun in their lives, are not naturals, especially compared to some of the Middle Easterners or Chechens or other foreigners, or Iraqis, in fact, who have been involved in in insurgent conflict for 10 years. And they are not naturally good fighters. And often, they are not used for fighting purposes. A lot of them are trained very basically in terms of being able to carry out guard duty. Uh, A lot of them, if they do have a skill that they have acquired in Britain, for example, if you're a car mechanic in Britain, you can be a car mechanic working for the Islamic State. If you're good with video editing software, you're certainly going to be used in media outreach and that sort of stuff. But the important point here is, and the problematic point about foreign fighters, especially Western foreign fighters, is that if you're not a good fighter, if you don't have any particular good skills, if you're not good at video editing, then often foreign fighters and Western foreign fighters use particularly excessively brutal operations. So it's very obvious that not only in this particular conflict, also in previous conflicts, a, a majority vast majority, in some cases, suicide operations, of beheadings, of acts of torture, were, killed at, uh, were carried out by foreigners. And we talked to a lot of Syrian fighters, fighters with Jabhat al-Nusra in the border region with Turkey, who told us, quite plainly, that a lot of Syrians are refusing to carry out some of these acts because they say it has nothing to do with Islam in our country. We haven't had that for 1,500 years. We don't like the foreigners because they are bringing this kind of stuff to our country. And I think it is no coincidence that, for example, 75% of the suicide bombings that have been carried out by ISIS have been carried out by foreigners. And that's why I'm saying that these foreign fighters, even though sometimes their motivations are quite sincere, often make these conflicts more extreme, more brutal, more sectarian, and ultimately more difficult to resolve. And that's certainly something that I believe we have seen in the case of Syria. So in terms of them coming back, I think there will be different groups of people coming back. Now, I describe them as the three Ds. Um, There will be people who are genuinely dangerous, and we're seeing some of them in our monitoring of Facebook who are already actively inciting people back here to carry out acts of terrorism, beheadings in the streets of London. They're talking about that all the time. Whether it's serious or not is another question, but they're certainly very agitated by the idea they want something to happen here they're truly dangerous and certainly for those people you need to have um, a punitive element that is part of the strategy but there are also other groups as i said they are not a monolithic entity there are what i would call the disturbed people who have made traumatic experiences because of what they've experienced what they've themselves been involved in and what they have seen as part of that conflict and who regardless of their ideological motivation, will pose a risk to society. And perhaps rather than prison, it would be more important, yes, of course, to protect society from them, but also to have perhaps a psychological, even psychiatric element as part of um, uh, their returning experience, if you want. And the third D are what I would call the disillusioned that I briefly mentioned. People who often went to Syria, for example, in 2012, who often joined groups that subsequently merged with the Islamic State. So they never actually actively joined the Islamic State. It was their commander who at some point decided that he wanted his battalion to be part of the Islamic State. Who are feeling that they are trapped who went there for different reasons, who never wanted to be part of the Islamic State, who want to come home and who want to reintegrate back into society. And before anyone um, sort of confronts me with uh, the idea of being naive and believing what they say, when I say it is important that there is a rehabilitation or de-radicalization element as part of the strategy, what I mean by that is not an amnesty. It's not just to say to people, oh, you can kind of just walk the streets of Britain, Uh, we believe what you say, off you go. That's not what de radicalisation is about. That's certainly not how I imagine a rehabilitation program to work. It can be quite tough. It will be, um, hopefully, a a fairly tough program um, that involves a lot of assessment and that minimizes the risks as much as possible. But those three Ds, are uh, I believe um, the populations that will return and rather than locking them all up I believe the fact that the foreign fighters come in different shapes and sizes means that our responses also need to have different shapes and sizes and, that, and at that point I hand over to Rachel.
1: Um, thank you very much and um, I'll just say something now I think about the to, to build on it, I think we're in danger of agreeing with one another Mm -hmm. (laughs) too much. But I'll just say something now about what those different shapes and sizes should be. And I would preface my comments um, by saying that I I come to this issue from two different perspectives. So clearly from the perspective of the work that I'm doing here with with ISD on these issues, but I also part-time run a charity called Hostage UK, which supports the families of hostages during a kidnap, and then the the hostage and the family uh, post-release, and and thankfully most of them are released. And so... um, you know, you will have seen the, the dreadful events um, over the summer and, and recent months with um, hostages who have not got back alive in Syria. Um, so I, I take very seriously um, the risk that, that these people pose. And um, as, as Peter said, you know, sometimes the most sensible and pragmatic approaches in this space are criticised for being woolly and soft and um, liberal, as if that's a Sort of a um, an accusation, um, but but really I you know genuinely have see, see this from both sides, and so I I I don't take any of this threat lightly. Um, clearly, there are a number of different things that we can do both before, during, and after uh, with the problem of foreign fighters. Um, the most effective thing to do, of course, would be to stop people going in the first place, um, and clearly. Um, That is where our police and our intelligence services have an important role to play, we know that they're having some successes in that space. Um, But really, one of the the things that I think we need as well to do is to look at um, some of the more locally bottom-up responses that can be um, put in place. Um, we work extensively with um, governments across Europe on these issues, and what we're seeing um, from a European perspective is the creation of a series of family networks, family support structures um, that work very, very, um, uh, very, very uh, sort of intensively with, with families of those who are deemed to be at risk of going. Um, and those who, who have actually gone. And and in places like Germany and in Denmark and in Sweden, they're seeing some really good um, results from that kind of work. Um, the ability to equip parents in particular with the kind of skills that they need. Um, this, is, this is not about just taking away someone's passport because there are countless examples of that having happened and the person managing to get there nevertheless. Um, this is about understanding that those closest to an individual are the most effective influences on them and we've seen some really um, good results in a number of European countries and I think there's very much scope to to explore that um, and get something in place here as Peter said you know I, and I like your 3ds very much um, for those for those returning clearly the most dangerous um, you know, need to be prosecuted, need to be incarcerated and you know, certainly if we look back at the events over this summer, um, that sort of feels like it's not quite enough for some of the people who've been involved in this. But nevertheless, that, that um, sort of justice system approach is, is, is entirely appropriate and um, some of them need to be locked up for a, for a very long time indeed. But, but actually, you know, in many cases, we will struggle to get convictions even where we should have convictions um, in many cases the the disturbed and the disillusioned um, might not be guilty of the crimes we assume that everybody who 's gone to Syria are guilty of um, and these are individuals who um, even if they 've been nowhere near the battlefield even if they 've not played an active role in combat in Syria will be <coughs> disturbed um, will have seen stuff that nobody should ever have to see in their lives, and and will be be disillusioned, um, to to put it mildly. And so for those coming back for whatever reason who don't manage to find themselves in the criminal justice system for for the right or wrong reasons, um, it's absolutely vital that we have a comprehensive program of support, rehabilitation, um, working with these individuals to get them back into mainstream society as productive uh, members of society. I know all too well from the work that I do in the other side of my life, just the impact that post-traumatic stress disorder can have on individuals who've been, uh, who have experienced very intense levels of trauma. Um, It can, you know, on the most basic level, it can ruin lives. Um, With individuals coming back from somewhere like Syria, um, the risk is really that if we don't treat those conditions In their fullest sense, um, proactively, these are individuals who are vulnerable um, and um, let us be the influence on them rather than the radicalisers and and recruiters. Um, And so, very important to get in place a sort of a comprehensive programme that scoops them up and that um, can work with them in in a very intense way. You know, in many ways, they are the low hanging fruit. Um, we know we know they've been there. We know that they're at risk, and they're presenting themselves back in the UK. Uh, we should be doing everything we can to compete for their loyalty, rather than push them away and leave them vulnerable to, to other people's um, uh, to other people. Um, the other thing that I wanted to to mention, which I think we don't talk about enough, is is what can be done to get people back. Um, Ideal a lot with the families of foreign fighters who are still there. And, um, you know, what we forget is that these parents, you know, in the same way that researchers working in Peter's team are, are able to stay in contact um, with, with these um, fighters, so are their parents. And I take a, a it sort of seems quite analogous to the, to the role of hostage negotiator. You know, a parent finds themselves pretty much negotiating for their son or daughter's life. Um, thinking, having to think incredibly carefully about how to structure that email, what to say on the phone, just saying the wrong thing could either shut the door to future communication, or as we have seen in, in some cases, um, raise suspicions for that individual amongst their, their co-fighters and, and their lives could be put a, at risk. So this, again, um, I think much that we can do supporting parents who find themselves in touch with their sons and daughters, um, to really equip them with some quite practical skills and advice to help them at the very least keep that door of communication open, but potentially more than that help to to actually um, bring bring them back. And this is where I think um, some of the government uh, language around the the ISIS threat is is really not very helpful. I'm not underestimating the threat, um, and I'm I'm not saying that that what is happening there is brutal and inhumane and and deserves the strongest of of response. Um, But actually, government language around returnees I think is incredibly unhelpful. Um, The idea that um, they can't come back, they'll have their nationality revoked and so on. This this kind of language is pushing pushing them away. um, I say that as somebody who is quite literally dealing with the after effects of, of what some of these individuals have done in Syria. So I don't make this point lightly. And um, I don't think that stance is, is sensible. Um, these are individuals who can be a source of intelligence and information about what's going on, firstly. Um, secondly, these are individuals that, that, if we push them away, will certainly become enemies for life. Um, and in my view, we should be competing for their loyalties. Um, because if we're not competing for them, there are plenty of bad guys who are lining up to do to do just that. And the experience that we have working with former violent extremists here at ISD, we run something called the Against Violent Extremism Network, which is a network of, of formers. The experience we have is that in pretty much every single story that you hear from a former, they talk about a moment of unexpected kindness that just causes that chink that then opens up the process of, of coming back. And that's um, a very sort of um, unwelcome uh, story to hear, but it's actually true. And, and I think opening opening the floodgates rather than closing them, I think, is 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 um, is is the way to go with this. And um, thirdly, these these individuals once rehabilitated, once brought back into society, once no longer a, a threat, are actually our most effective counter narrative. Um, what is more effective in convincing somebody not to go than somebody who's been um, and has said, "What a waste of time that was. I was, I was used. I was duped. Um, you know, that's that's three years of my life I won't, I won't get back." So, for for all sorts of reasons, I think. We need, to be, we need to be competing for the for the loyalties of these individuals. Um, we know that there are dozens who are scared and disillusioned, both within Syria and in Turkey, sort of caught in a in a no man's land. Um, and while while we're not suggesting that that we sort of let them back in and forgive and forget and you know just just get on with life, um, it's it's a bit more complicated than that clearly. Um, I think think a balanced uh, message to them might just convince some to come back and face justice rather than go on the run for the rest of their lives with with terrorist organizations. Um, And so, you know, I I think we're very much in agreement, you know, let's get these people back, let's get the the ones who need to be incarcerated and incarcerated, but let's really invest heavily in proper rehabilitation for the others. just finally, um, you know, I've said a couple of things about, about messaging here, and um, I think we do need a serious rethink about the kind of messaging that is going out publicly about ISIS. Um, one of the things that I've seen shift over the last 12 months or so, and maybe you'll say a little bit more about this, is, is the way in which ISIS's narrative is shifting. And it's very much a narrative of victory, um, and you know they in some ways have good reason to, to to base their narrative on victory just given what they're managing to achieve on the ground and I, th- I think we have to be careful to ensure that we're not playing into that um through the work that i do at mr gk we've had some very uh, rigorous discussions with journalists behind the scenes about you know not showing these images that that, that merely inflate um, the, the position of ISIS, not using the images and the, the videos from of, of the murder of the hostages, um, thinking carefully about the amount of airtime we get, um, and and again, politicians thinking <coughs> very clearly, uh, very carefully about the kind of language that they use when talking about an unequivocal uh, response to to the ISIS um, threat. Um, I think there's space for uh some concerted and coordinated um rethinking of this messaging certainly from a hostage uk perspective we're having some very constructive discussions with journalists behind the scenes who recognize that that they are being used as part of the propaganda machine and they don't like it and they want to they want to find a different way of covering these stories so i think there is there is an important moment now that we have to actually um, work together to, to rethink messages and I think um, thinking carefully with technology companies, particularly social media platforms, about their terms of service and what they do allow and what they don't allow on those platforms, um, I think would would make a really important um, contribution.